Hi everyone, you're listening to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview investors to find out how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Enjoy the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview investors and discuss how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Before we hop into today's show, I want to remind you of today's sponsor. This show is brought to you by PassiveInvesting.com. PassiveInvesting.com is a private equity real estate investment firm focused on institutional quality multifamily and self-storage assets in the hottest markets in the United States. PassiveInvesting.com partners with their investors to provide opportunities to build wealth together by delivering consistent monthly cash flow, capital appreciation, and strong tax benefits. They currently have 1,700 plus passive investors with a 62% repeat investor rate. If you're interested in learning more, head over to PassiveInvesting.com or click on the link in the show notes. You can get more information on investment opportunities, educational webinars, or insightful articles. Reach out and see how they can help you build wealth through real estate. Now, bringing in our guest, he has been a CPA for 35 plus years. He's held positions as a COO and CFO for companies in retail, manufacturing, corporate services, entertainment, digital media, and real estate. He's been a real estate investor for 20 plus years and actually just completed his first syndication. Coming all the way from Nashville, please give a warm welcome to Stuart Heath. Thanks for having me, Taylor. Yeah, thanks for connecting and hopping on the show. And it's a pleasure to actually have a full-on conversation with you. Some context for the audience, we actually met at the Intelligent Investors Conference over in Manhattan Beach. So it's nice to have this follow-up conversation. Wasn't that a great conference? That was it was. Really, really it good was. stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So much knowledge and just like-minded individuals just in that space. It was really inspiring and also such a huge learning factor of seeing what other people are doing, You know, whether that's within the multifamily space, self-storage, office space, or even ATMs. It was an amazing conference. Yeah. But with the, just with the little insight that I gave and the little intro that I just spoke about you, Stuart, I'd love to give you a chance to tell the audience a little bit more about you and how you got started in real estate. Thanks for the opportunity. As you said, my dad was a CPA, so I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And we're very different people. My dad had one job his entire career, and he was good at it. And he made good money for the family and had one nice stable job. And he was perfectly satisfied with that. I didn't realize till I was out of college and really went into public accounting and started doing the same thing that I really don't like this. <laughs> you know? So I was just looking all around for different things that I could do. I do enjoy numbers in the financial aspect. I really enjoy being an advocate for my clients and giving them good advice and helping them on their journey, not necessarily being a cop for the IRS, but you don't always get really get paid for your full value when you're giving great advice. Sometimes you just make an hourly rate. So as I looked around, finally in about year 2000, I like to tell this story because the older people will remember this. So back in the 90s, in like say year 2000, there was a guy who used to have infomercials on TV every night on almost every channel. His name was Carlton Sheets. Mm. And it was he had a, this course called No Money Down. Now there's lots of people who do that kind of thing. But how to buy real estate, build wealth, no money down. You don't need any money. So it was probably two o'clock in the morning and I was frustrated and up. It was probably middle of tax season. So I, I looked at it, you know, it was $199 and money back guarantee. Well, heck, 
I bought it. And so I started listening to the tapes and going through the stuff. And it was quality material, good advice. Combining that with something another mentor had told me, he says, you've got to get into the game. You got to go do something. So I followed his advice and I found a duplex that was for sale in back when we actually had newspapers, you know, classified ads. And I found one there in my hometown and I convinced the seller to take back 100% of the paper. I think I bought it for 55000 It had one tenant in one side, and I had to find a tenant for the other side, which I did fairly quickly. And boom, I was in the business. I was in, wow. I was in the real estate business, and it actually went pretty well. I thought there was no way in the world. Why would the seller take back a note on some guy who just responded to his ad? And we actually became good friends. And I think he just wanted to be out of the maintenance business. So, you know, it was a two-year deal. Mm -hmm. Two years later, I was able to refinance the property with a bank. I pulled out 5K and paid off his note and pocketed a little money. I mean, the property was a dog. It was not a great property. The only thing it had going for it was being in Franklin, Tennessee, which is a very nice place to be. But the income was okay. The tenant base was not. And then the very next thing I did, I kept looking, kept following the principles that I had learned from Carlton Sheets. So my very next deal about three months later was I bought a set of 14 duplexes, all contiguous to each other from another investor. And you know, we haggled back and forth for several weeks. And the one rule I learned from Carlton Sheets was if you're not embarrassed by your first offer, then you're offering too much. Everybody smiles but not very many people follow that. But trust me, I was embarrassed, but I did it. And I've now used that almost every time I've ever bought a piece of real estate. If you see something and there's value and there's cash flow there, you don't really know where the seller is until you just go in really low. Sometimes they'll just say no, they won't counter. And that's okay. Nobody's ever gotten mad at me in 20 plus years. But you just sort of have to get in and do your homework. The real thing that I love about real estate is it's mostly math. I, I, I'm a CPA. I understand numbers. Uh, you got to do your due diligence and do your underwriting and you know, make sure you're not buying a repair bill. But at the end of the day, with most properties, uh, the income is income and the expenses are the expenses. So therefore, how much can you afford to borrow? How much and you know, and so what's the cash flow? You just work the numbers. It's not hard. I mean, there, there's a lot of more complex ways to make money. And if it cash flows, buy it and then wait. Because most of the time, real estate increases in value and you go forward from there. That's how I got started in it. Yeah, no, that's a, a very fascinating story because it almost sounds like a lot of the principles that you learn from Carlton Sheets still carry on until today. And even with that first duplex that you bought, I mean, typically you don't really hear many people doing seller financing on their first go around. And so I guess I wanted to talk and dive into a little bit more about how you got to that strategy. And if the seller knew about seller financing beforehand, how did you meet the seller? Because it's, yeah, like I said, it's just not very often that that happens. Usually people just go through an FHA a loan and, and then that's that. Yeah. The seller had listed the property in the classified ads. Oh, the classified ads, right, right, okay, got it. Of the Tennessean, which was our paper of the day. Got it. So he was an experienced real estate investor. He had a partner on the deal. So 
there was a particular reason, if I recall, that seller financing worked out for them. One of them didn't want to take their gain currently and doing an installment sale worked for them. And, and the other one just you know, basically didn't care one way or the other. But they were sophisticated. They understood what I was proposing right off. And I think I had a um, an 8% interest rate or something like that, which was kind of crazy for the day. But again, it was $50,000. It wasn't a whole lot of money in whole dollars, crazy percentage-wise. It was a very easy transaction. What it did was, you know, it gave me confidence to go out, probably too much confidence to go out and do the next one. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it fulfilled what my mentor had told me to get into the game, go out and do something. It doesn't have to be your best deal, but go out and do a deal. That's not a call to go out and do something stupid, but it doesn't need to be a home run. You can just be, it doesn't need to be a home run. An it, RBI, it, as long as yeah, you get into the game. Exactly. You know, the bottom line is from my perspective is it should cash flow. You know, I'm a cash flow investor. I am not against development or value adds. I mean, those are great ways to do things too, but they require hard cash. Right. So, so, you know, I'm curious then about the transition. Do you still own the portfolio of the 16 duplexes? Or I do not. You got I it. Do. So yeah, I was curious just about the transition then into what you're focusing on now, because I heard you in a couple other podcasts and now you invest in not you know just residential, you invest in different assets all across. And so I'd love to know that transition and then also you know what other types of assets that you're investing in. Yeah. Well, I learned over the years, by the time 2008 came, I had over a hundred residential units. Mm-hmm. When I got into it, I just really got into it. Some of them I built and then I just really decided that I don't like residential property. <laughs> you know, it was, hmm, that would have been nice to know. But it is a great way to get started in the business. And you learn a lot. I learned a whole lot. And so once I didn't have the residential assets anymore, along the way, I had developed some office condos. I love office tenants. Uh, the Harvard Grace, our first syndication that we did and closed this week is an office property here in Spring Hill. Oh. Uh, but I've done other things. I've done self-storage. I keep trying to do a multifamily deal, but I haven't gotten one done yet. But it's not for a lack of trying. There is a lot of competition, as you probably know, on mm-hmm. multifamily deals no. and probably will be with the outlook for housing for the next 10 years. I think you could probably build a new housing development on every corner of every yeah. city and you're not going to run out of housing. So a lot of competitions, got to have some capital and be able to move fast on a lot of deals. You're actually the first person that I've met that has done an office syndication. And so I definitely want to dive into that because that is very fascinating to me. But before we get into that, you mentioned that you were deterred away from residential real estate and you just stopped enjoying it. And and I wanted to know just some of the factors that made you not dislike it, because it, it is a pretty common investment strategy for a lot of people and jumping into it. Yeah. What were some of the disadvantages and some of the, some of the leg pulling on you? It's all personal. I think they're great assets. Mm -hmm. I am a hands-on guy. And so when I got to have about 50 or 60 units, I needed help. And then once I decided I was hiring people, then I created the property management company. I bought a property management company because I had tried using property managers and I came to the conclusion, you can manage the property or you can manage the manager. And just from my perspective, they both took about the same amount of time. Now, if you do higher grade assets and the ones I had gotten into, 
I would say, lower grade. They weren't slums. They were working class properties, blue collar properties. And, you know, about 80% of the people were great. But what just made me not enjoy it was some people are not rational when it comes to their home. And you don't generally run into that when you're talking about an office property or a self-storage unit. You know, we've all seen storage wars where people have just forgotten that grandma's stuff is in the the storage unit. Uh, But when you're dealing with people, you know, people have problems. It's not that I'm without mercy. I do a lot of charitable and merciful stuff. That's out of a different pocket, you know, out of my investment pocket. But it just became too difficult. And I'm not blaming that on really the people or on the asset. Really, you make your money on the tenant selection. And I became so convinced that you have to be so rigorous in the tenant selection process that just as I was becoming convinced about that and trying to get better at that, I had an opportunity and I got out of all of it. But as I just said, I'm still interested. I'm looking for a good multifamily deal, but I would probably hire a property manager that go around just because you need to know what you like and what you're capable of. And you don't want your investment to start making you miserable. Yeah, absolutely. And then also too, I can imagine, you know, to your point when they are more like these working class you know, type of assets, it can get very emotional too, because like these are people with their families and with their lives. And, you know, sometimes they may disagree with where the asset is going. And, you know, sometimes they're not going to agree with where the asset's going. And so always trying to manage and upkeep the positivity of the community just to keep it going is a very tasking job. And, And even with managing that property manager and making sure that their values are aligned, like they could be having a tough time too. And at the end of the day, it's up to the owner to make sure that everything's going well. So, I mean, to your point, it's a lot. (laughs) It's definitely a lot. And there's a reason why there are people, there are operators out there that are doing this full time to make sure that they're focused on that. But, you know, when you go into the office space and retail space, and even I guess more of those like institutional quality, like higher grade assets, it's more like a business where there isn't as much emotion. So, you know, I can empathize and understand where you're coming from. And so now I guess, you know, I want to now tailor this back into this office indication that y'all are doing. Because like I said, this is the first one that, that I've heard about. So you mentioned it was in Spring Hill. Yeah. And how did you find this deal? Was it through a broker? Was it off market? It's definitely off market. So Mm -hmm. what I do also is I have a fractional CFO company where I serve as a virtual CFO for lots of, so this building belonged to one of my clients, which is a not-for-profit. And they bought this building 20 years ago when they had a call center here and they still have that activity, but everybody works from their home. You know, most call centers, which used to occupy a lot of space in a lot of cities, all of those people are at home now. And so as their CFO here, they they had debt, they had all these expenses. And I said, you have no business being in, this is not the asset for you to own. You know, I said, you either need to hire a professional property manager to manage the building, or we need to sell it. So I've been managing this building for mm. four years. Wow. And so that's how it was off market. I knew every detail down to the last dime. I'd negotiated most of the leases. You know, I know the tenants. So it's been a fairly easy deal to do. I've been actually been working on it for three years. I've been joking. So you know, two years and nine months, it was how long it took me to convince them to sell. Then it just took me 90 days to uh, close, close, it. The deal. <laughs> close the deal. <laughs> yeah. 
there was a lot of emotion tied up in the building with the board of directors and stuff mm. like that. But it was time and they banked a ton of cash out of it. So I'm pleased that the ministry is, uh, they'll be able to deploy that in other ways and probably make more money off of it if it's invested right. So we got an incredible financing deal right here as rates are about to go up. Don't overlook your credit unions in your area because they're not always impacted by the same outside influences as as banks. Because we got a 3.25 fixed for 10 years rate with a 25-year AM. And I had several debt offers on it. And I had a couple of banks come and match that for five years, but not for 10. And so our view is that, you know, the financing is almost worth almost as much as the asset because, uh, you know, we could now sell the entity and the financing would go with it in the next five years or so. So, I mean, it's just don't overlook your credit unions because you never know what kind of deal that they've cut or have going on internally. Right. The credit unions, the local banks, you can they can be more lenient, you know, the normal agency debts, and they're not so strict on some of these requirements that they have to see can definitely vary depending on the relationships that you build with them. Now, I'm curious about the business plan. Are you guys going in there and renovating, I guess, some of these, some of the spaces? How many units are they? And was it already occupied before? It is 100% leased. The seller executed a lease as part of the purchase. So they're staying and we gave them a portion of free rent. And so, but they'll start paying here soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's 100% leased and will wow. be 100% leased through 2024. Wow. And so, in the syndication structure, how are the returns structured and how long are y'all planning to hold it? And then, what does the exit plan look like? For- yeah, great question. So, we structured our syndication as a 70 30 pref with an 8% preferred return to the investors. We raised $1.2 million. And so, in case nobody knows how that works. So the investors will get 100% of the cash flow mm-hmm. until they've gotten their 8% return you know, annually back plus 100% of their investment dollars. And at that point, then Harvard Grace Capital, the sponsor will get kicked in for 30% of the cash flow. We marketed this as a five-year hold mm-hmm. uh, based upon market conditions. We're in control of when that happens. Most of my investors, and I've talked with most of them at length, have said, oh, as long as the cash flow is good, they just soon hold the asset. Mm-hmm. So I think we have a group that would really be interested in you know, refining at some point, taking some cash out and then keep going. You've seen that model. So this is an asset that would be perfect for a long-term hold. It's a um, almost 28,000 square foot office building, pretty much the only one like this for a three mile radius. And Spring Hill is best known as the home for the original GM Saturn manufacturing plant, where they did away with the Saturn brand. But you can see the Saturn plant here from the building, and they're right now building their EV assembly factory and their EV battery factory. So they're going to be adding several thousand more jobs there this year. And so Spring Hill's going nowhere. So it's got a real long-term outlook. So that's like right on the top of the uh, 840-565 corridor of where, get it. where it get starts. It. Okay, got it. Now, I was, I was looking at your guys' strategy, and I was curious if you can touch on why that corridor? Like what makes that place so exciting? I mean, I guess like with Saturn, the whole EV plant coming in, that's one of the factors then. But what else about just 
this area with Tennessee and even parts of Alabama make this so attractive? Good question. So, you know, the Saturn plant's been here since like 1988 or something like that. I remember they announced it when I was still in college. So that's really not the big driver. Although the $4 billion they're investing here for the other is in hurting. But my main driver for the 845-65 corridor, so uh, 840 is an interstate loop south of Nashville that goes from east to west. And then you go south from there to 565, which is a similar connector that goes through Huntsville, Alabama. And Huntsville is really my main driver. I like tertiary markets. Nashville is a hot, hot, hot city. Lived there my whole life. There's parts of it I don't recognize anymore. It's changed so much. But there's an awful lot of competition there. And in tertiary markets, it's not that there's no competition. It is a less crowded market. And I think cap rates in Nashville are too low. Intelligent Investors Conference, there was an awful lot of talk about cap rates. Where are they going? Are they going to flatten out or are they going to go back up? I don't know. But, you know, I did this office building at a seven and a half cap uh, on the first year NOI, and I'm borrowing at 3.25. Uh, you know, that's that's a four-point spread, and I'm all about it. To me, it's all about the numbers, as I said before. Right. I've got a bud who um, did a multifamily deal in the heart of Nashville, and he did a three-and-a-half cap, and he's borrowing at four. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> it's tough. Now, his point to me is, yeah, but my rents are going up 12% next year. I mean, and he is in the multifamily space. If you know that, then yeah, you can probably suffer one year of negative or flat cash flow, but that's not how I like to do deals. So I guess going back to the office syndication, did you get a lot of questions from, because you mentioned that it's better for somebody that is looking for a longer term hold, right? With the state of, of what the pandemic was, office buildings, I guess, aren't would be like the almost like the last place on my mind just because like, oh, people are working from home. And I feel like there was always that negative connotation going into it. So did you have a lot of investors asking questions about like, oh, what are the risks going into you know this syndication? And you know, how did you guys try and mitigate towards those risks? Nobody that invested ever asked that question. I did have some of those questions with potential investors. And here's why. Everybody that invested lives in Nashville down through Birmingham. Mm. Okay, so If you're in the South, most of us have been back to work since the summer of 2020. May have mentioned before, got a daughter in Chicago and, you know, a lot of them are still not. A lot of the big cities, you're in Southern California. COVID restrictions are still very much in force out there. So it all depends on where you live. And at least, again, in the South, especially in Nashville, even before the pandemic in the fall of 19, it became apparent. And even in Q1 of 2020, there was an exodus from the city center going back out to the suburbs. And you know, as people move, they don't want to drive 30, 45 minutes to their office building. So we're very, very high on the suburban office asset. And there's been a lot of press about that in the real estate media uh, since uh, the first of the year. We've known that for a while. You've probably heard the phrase, all real estate is local. I wouldn't buy an office building in Chicago either. And But in the South, you know, we very much have a hybrid model. People are working from home, but companies still need offices because they need all their people to come together from time to time. So, I mean, like I said, this building's 100% full. We had two spaces open going into the pandemic. 
and leased wow. them and leased them in 2020. We were prepared. We thought, well, we won't lease these until at least a year. And you're prepared for that. They were yeah. they were gone within five months. Wow. And I feel like that's just a huge emphasis on the importance of knowing your market and being Absolutely. local to your market. And because for me coming from California, I never would have known that about this specific area. And I feel like that would turn a lot of heads away from it. But the fact that, you know, you have a lot of local investors and you yourself just being boots on the ground and understanding the depth of the market, what drives everything is where the niche opportunity is. Yeah. And so now I'm curious about moving forward then. So now, you know, this happened, 2022 was upon us. What is next for Harvard Grace Capital and and Stewart? We want to do two more deals this year. So uh, Harvard Grace is one year old and took us mainly last year to get this one deal. So we want to do two deals this year because we're fairly picky and the Mm -hmm. deal must cash flow because a lot of deals getting done right now don't cash flow day one. And so we're going to kiss a lot of frogs until we find one that we want to be our prince. What's next for us is I plan to spend a great deal of time in Northern Alabama the rest of this month and in March trying to find deals. I thought I had one yesterday and it was it was gone just like that. But that's the market. It was another office property actually here in, in this area. But yeah, my main focus is really the Northern Alabama area. Although there are some other small towns around Spring Hill, like Columbia, Spring Hill, Shelbyville, Lewisburg, that have some little gems in them. You have to be very careful, but some of them are quite attractive. And of course, you make your money on the buy, not necessarily the sell. If you don't buy it right, you're rarely going to make any money. So probably looking at some multifamily deals in some of these smaller towns, but then some office. I've got two industrial properties I'm looking at in the heart of Huntsville. And if you don't know what's going on in Huntsville, Alabama, since 2008, the United States Army has moved about 75,000 troops to the Redstone Arsenal as they've consolidated some bases. And now the FBI and the NSA and the CIA and a whole bunch of other people, government, have moved operations to this same facility. And then there's the industrial piece. Uh, Toyota Mazda has a joint venture. They will actually start production this year. Facebook's putting a big data center there. And so everybody's coming to Northern Alabama. So Yeah, it is a hot and happening place. Actually, at my previous job, I was, I was hiring for Google Fiber door-to-door reps. And so they were always talking about, you know, Huntsville. And then also even in Nashville, they're just yeah. exploding. Yeah. It's just red hot. So yeah. Huntsville reminds me of Nashville about 30 years ago. Wow. I mean, I mean, it's still smaller than that, but you know, I've spent 30 years or so. Man, I wish I'd acted on that. Man, <laughs> so <laughs> this is my chance, you know, because uh, I think I know where to look. And it's just a great town with a lot of good stuff happening down there. Awesome. Awesome. It was great learning your story and then getting to know you and your strategy and then knowing a little bit more about Harvard Grace Capital and getting some local market knowledge within Nashville and then also, you know, Huntsville just in that within that corridor. And if people want to reach out to you and learn more about you, your strategy, and even talk about the markets, how can they reach you? Yeah, best way to get me is either like on LinkedIn, look me up. Our website is harvardgracecapital.com. You can uh, drill down there and uh, find my Calendly link if you want to chat with me or we can just email however you want to communicate. You can find that from those two spaces. That's the best place. 
Awesome. And those will also be in the show notes as well. Thank you, Stuart, for hopping onto the show. And everyone stay tuned for a few days when we do the action episodes on Friday. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Stuart. And thank you have so much, a, Taylor. Yeah, have a, have a great rest of your day. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you got any value out of the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you leave a rating and review on iTunes to help others receive that same value. If you're looking to learn more on how to passively invest in apartment buildings or self-storage assets, click on my link in the show notes to learn more. Thanks, and I'll see you next time.